Good afternoon. Uh, it's my honor to call this hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to order. Uh, I am uh, well, I welcome uh, the chance to serve as chair of this hearing and appreciate Chairman Menendez uh, asking me to take this on as we consider five highly qualified nominees. Uh, and I welcome as ranking member for this hearing, uh, Senator Haggerty uh, and the five uh, nominees who are before us. Uh, let me briefly introduce them and I'll make a very brief statement and then invite Senator Haggerty to make whatever opening statement uh, he may care to. Um, our five nominees for this afternoon's hearing are Dr. C.S. Elliott Kang to be Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation, Adam Scheinman to be Special Representative of the President for Nuclear Nonproliferation, Marcia Stevens Bloom Bernicat to be Director General of the Foreign Service, Bathsheba Nell Crocker to be U.S. Representative to the Office of the United States and other international organizations in Geneva, and Dr. Michael Carpenter to be U.S. Representative to the Organization for security and cooperation in Europe. Let me begin by thanking all five of you, thanking you for your willingness to continue to your service to this nation. Um, and let me extend my thanks to your families who normally, if we were in person, uh, would many of them be physically with us. And so I'd have a chance to greet them. Uh, I don't know if any of them are hovering just off the screen, uh, but please convey to them my gratitude for their support for your uh, career in service. Um, before we proceed um, into the substance of your opening statements, uh, our colleague from New Jersey, Senator Booker, uh, will introduce Ambassador Bernicat. Um, let me also, before we proceed to that, um, do two more things. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, all of our nominees today to please keep your statements to roughly five minutes in length. Um, the committee will accept your written testimonies in full and submit them for the record. Um, and I also want to note for all members uh, and staff who may be listening, that questions for the record for this confirmation hearing will be due by the close of business this Thursday, September 16th. With that, let me invite Senator Haggerty to make any opening comment he would like to, then we'll proceed uh, to an introduction by Senator Booker. Senator Haggerty. Chairman Coons, uh, thank you very much. Um, and I wanna thank Senator Risch for inviting me to serve as ranking member today. Um, I also want to thank the nominees for appearing before our committee today. I appreciate your willingness to serve our great nation. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing from each of you. I'd like to start with the nomination, nomination to the Director General of the Foreign Service. This position has the unique responsibility of recruiting, retaining, and sustaining the Foreign Service and the Civil Service workforce of the State Department. As a former U.S. Ambassador to Japan, I recognize that the people of the State Department are critical to the success of American diplomacy. For the United States to tackle the growing number of complex global challenges, we should seek to build the finest diplomatic corps in the world. And I look forward to hearing from a nominee about how we'll achieve this goal. Next, I'd like to turn to the nomination to be Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation. As strategic adversaries such as China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea continue to expand their arsenal of weapons of mass destruction, the world is becoming more dangerous each day. The United States should look for opportunities to expand counterproliferation efforts and ways to stop the spread of weapons of mass destruction. I'm particularly interested to hear from the nominees about his views on the increasing WMD threats from China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, and what the United States should be doing. I'd like to turn next to the nominee to be the special representative of the president for nuclear nonproliferation. There are a growing number of countries, such as China and Iran, 
that pose significant challenges with respect to nuclear energy and nonproliferation norms. I look forward to hearing from the nominee about ways to update the NPT for the 21st century. Now, I'd like to turn to the nominee to be the U.S. representative to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. I just returned from NATO, and it's clear that following the withdrawal from Afghanistan, we're at a critical juncture with many of our European allies and partners, and they need to know that the United States can and will be a reliable partner. This is even more important considering Russia's efforts to spread malign influence throughout Europe. I look forward to hearing from the nominee about these issues. And now I want to turn my attention to the nominee to be the representative of the United States to the United Nations and to other international organizations in Geneva. As the lead U.S. official representing over 100 U.N. bodies in Geneva, you'll be responsible for advancing U.S. interest in many multilateral organizations. As we all know, China and other strategic adversaries are looking to expand their influence by remaking global institutions in their image. I look forward to hearing from the nominee about what steps she intends to take to fight for America. Mr. Chairman, I yield back my time. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Haggerty. Let me now invite Senator Booker of New Jersey uh, to offer an introduction of uh, Ambassador Berenike. Well, this is an extraordinary honor, Senator Coons. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, I'm really elated, thank, frankly, to be able to introduce President Biden's nominee to serve as Director General of the Foreign Service, Ambassador Marsha Bernicott. We are currently, as you know, facing uh, tremendous challenges all across the globe that will not only define the history of the world, but will most certainly define the history of our nation. Challenges like global, the global crisis of climate change, taking on uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, which continues to cause such tragedy around the world. And we know this for all of us senators who've been traveling, America's diplomatic leadership uh, is now needed more than ever. And that's why we need this great Jerseyan, Ambassador Bernicott, leading the diplomatic corps responsible for representing the United States of America and advancing our interests around the world. I can think of no one more qualified for this extraordinarily important position. Uh, she has served as a foreign service officer for three decades, starting, I think, when she was two or three years old. <laughs> Ambassador Bernicott has had a career uh, that is not just impressive, but impactful. She most recently served as senior official for economic growth, energy, and the environment at the State Department, and prior to that, served as the ambassador to Bangladesh, and previously, uh, concurrently, as the ambassador to Senegal and Guinea-Bissau. Over the course of her diplomatic career, she has received extraordinary honors and respect from those who she served with. Uh, she is somebody that is both well-respected and looked up to, but also uh, someone in which folks have great confidence in. She has served in Barbados, Malawi, Morocco, India, Nepal, France, and Mali. All across the world, she has made an impact and left a lasting legacy. She represents the best of the United States of America. And I would say, uh, coming from the great state of New Jersey, she represents the best of New Jerseyans. Born in the wonderful Red Bank, New Jersey, Ambassador Bernicat probably has many, many accolades, but perhaps her two best uh, living legacy examples of her success is her two sons, uh, who she has raised while serving in the Foreign Service. As we, senators in a bipartisan effort work to reinvest 
in the diplomatic efforts that keep America safe, rebuild our alliances uh, and partnerships, and live up to our collective values here at home and abroad. Ambassador Bernicott is exactly the kind of leader we need. I urge my colleagues, if not to field, because of fealty to New Jersey, I urge my colleagues because of fealty to the United States of America to support her nomination. Thank you, Senator Booker. I appreciate that introduction. Um, we're now going to proceed to hear opening statements from each of our five nominees in the order in which they were noticed uh, for this hearing by the committee. So um, no disrespect, Senator Booker, we're going to begin with Dr. C.S. Elliott Kang, uh, and then we'll proceed through the five nominees in the order that they were noticed. I disrespect I taken, but go ahead. <laughs> it's just part of the traditions of this committee. So if I might, Dr. Kang, your opening statement. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Senator Booker, I'm also from New Jersey. <laughs> Ocean County, Lakewood, New Jersey. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Chairman Coons, uh, Ranking Member Haggerty, and distinguished members of the committee, uh, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. I am grateful to President Biden for nominating me to be the Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation. I am also grateful to Secretary Blinken for his trust and faith in supporting my nomination. Crossing the Pacific as a nine-year-old immigrant almost half a century ago, my only ambition was to taste a real hamburger. No doubt my mother uh, and father, uh, who made the faithful decision for my family to start a new life in the United States, had more lofty hopes for me and my sister Myung. However, I'm sure they never imagined the honor of me appearing before this, this august body to be examined for my worthiness to serve this great nation as an Assistant Secretary of State. If confirmed, I pledge to continue working tirelessly for the American people. Indeed, public service is in my DNA. I've been following the footsteps of my late father a decorated combat pilot and a government official, and my mother, a lifelong educator and recipient of New Jersey Governor's Award for Outstanding Teaching. I started my career in my mother's profession, but events of September 11, 2001, led me to my father's path of government service. It has not been an easy path to tread, but unwavering support from my wife, Michelle, and the understanding of my two sons, Gregory and Wesley, have strengthened my uh, steps and resolve. In 2003, I first joined the State Department's Bureau of Political Military Affairs and then Bureau of Arms Control as a William C. Foster Fellow, which was a congressionally established program for bringing academics into the government, into the department's arms control and nonproliferation work. I became a career civil servant in 2005, and since 2006, I have held various leadership positions in the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation, working to protect the American people from dangers posed by the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and their delivery systems. As a career officer, I have endeavored across four presidential administrations 
to minimize the threat of nuclear, chemical, biological, and advanced conventional weapons and destabilization these weapons can cause. However, despite tremendous bipartisan efforts and the steadfast leadership of this committee to stem the tide of the most destructive and horrible weapons, the challenges only appears to be growing. Indeed, the explosion of technology seems to create as many problems for our security as it solves for our society. In the late hours of the evening, I reflect upon the increasing challenges we face, and I arrive to work every morning resolved and determined to do something about them. In this commitment, I am not alone. I am privileged to serve the American people alongside a remarkable group of colleagues who share my dedication, the men and women serving in the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation, who frustrate our adversaries and are respected by allies and friends throughout the world. I am inspired by these public servants who gladly accept personal sacrifices to serve our nation. The president's confidence in me a career officer is an honor for me and my family, but it is also a testament to the expertise and ability of remarkable professionals in the Bureau. Indeed, the Bureau is an extraordinary collection of civil servants, foreign service officers, and contractors with expertise in the physical sciences, engineering, intelligence, military sciences, communications, and program administration. Many are leading subject matter experts with international reputations. I am in awe of the tremendous skill and knowledge and dedication they bring to tackle some of the most pressing security problems facing the world and the nation. If confirmed, I will work even harder to empower my colleagues to tackle the challenges this committee expects us to meet. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, the ranking member, and the members of the committee for your time and attention today, and for your consideration of my nomination. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Dr. Kang. Mr. Scheiner. Well, thank you, uh, Chairman Coons, ranking member Haggerty, and uh, all other members of the committee present today. It is really an honor to appear today as President Biden's nominee for Special Representative of the President for Nuclear Nonproliferation. I'm grateful to the President and Secretary Blinken for the confidence placed in me, and I'm very pleased to be here today with my old friend Elliot Kong and all other uh, nominees here today. Mr. Chairman, this is my second time nominated to serve in this position first followed more than two decades in the federal civil service, working on issues related to nuclear weapons proliferation and related nuclear risks. And for the last four years, I served on the faculty of the National War College, which among other benefits was a welcome opportunity to step back and, and view nuclear matters through a wider lens. At the War College, we teach that major US uh, national security challenges are best met using all instruments of power diplomatic, military, economic, and informational, and in partnership with friends and allies and on occasion our competitors. Perfect illustration is nuclear proliferation. It's a challenge to our vital interests and one for which there are no purely military or, or political solutions. There is no doubt that the international system is in transition 
It's increasingly competitive, it's less predictable, and in a time of turbulence, some sought to ask whether the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, or the NPT, an agreement conceived in the Cold War period, is still fit for purpose. To my mind, the answer is a resounding yes. There is no nuclear weapons challenge facing the United States for which the NPT limits our strategic options or for which better options would be available in the treaty's absence. On the contrary, the NPT is a force multiplier. It extends the range and reach of our nuclear diplomacy, global confidence and nonproliferation norms and all the supporting institutions. This, I think, explains the continuity of U.S. bipartisan support for the NPT, support that spans 12 presidencies, six Democratic and uh, six Republican administrations, from President Kennedy to President Biden. And as in prior decades, it certainly remains true that nuclear proliferation dangers are best tackled not alone, but through collective action. And the, the NPT anchors that action. It's the basis for assembling diplomatic coalitions to confront countries like Iran and North Korea. It's why robust international safeguards came into being and we continue to strengthen them. And it provides a framework for peaceful nuclear cooperation and restraint on transfers of the most sensitive nuclear technologies. It also permeates U.S. alliances that are themselves potent instruments of nonproliferation policy. At the same time, we have to acknowledge that the NPT is not immune from pressures that could erode its appeal. Regional grievances, rising frustration of parties over the slow pace on nuclear disarmament actions are really serious problems for the NPT's political process. And no one here needs any imagination to guess at the consequences for the treaty and for international security if Iran were to take the path of North Korea and withdraw from the treaty to develop nuclear weapons. If confirmed, I look forward to doing my part to advance a broad U.S. strategy to strengthen the NPT in all aspects. There is much work to do from strengthening the institutional machinery for nonproliferation to reassuring allies that they can depend on the, on the United States for defense and deterrence and reviving the arms control enterprise as President Biden has started with the agreement uh, with Russia on a five-year extension of the New START Treaty. These are important steps and I hope they lay the groundwork for additional measures. Most significantly, our NPT agenda requires steady U.S. leadership we were present at the creation of the nonproliferation regime, and no other state has our reach or our influence to sustain it. And if confirmed, I pledge to do my part to carry forward the legacy of U.S. leadership, working closely with Congress, with my interagency colleagues, and our foreign partners to preserve and strengthen this vital instrument. So thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome any questions you or members of the committee may have. Thank you, Mr. Scheinman. We'll now turn to Ambassador Bernicke. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Senator Coons, Ranking Member Senator Haggerty, distinguished members of the committee. I am honored to appear before you today. I sincerely thank President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the confidence they have placed in me as their nominee for Director General of the Foreign Service and to serve as Director of Global Talent Management. If confirmed, I will work with the members of this committee to build a workforce better able to confront the breadth and depth of challenges we face in the 21st century. Supporting the more than 76,000 women and men who make up our diverse global team would be the highest privilege of my four-decade career. 
I am inspired by my colleagues who so dutifully serve our nation, too often in harm's way. They deserve our full support and their welfare will be my North Star. Mr. Chairman, I would like to acknowledge my aunt and uncle, Blanche and Robert Stevens, my sister and brother-in-law, Catherine and Luther White, and brother and sister-in-law, Rodney and Sidney Bloom. I'd also like to thank my sons, Sumit Nicholas and Sunil Christopher, and their father, Olivier, who hold a special place in my heart, in no small part, for having shared this foreign service journey with me across the globe. As Secretary Blinken noted when he came before this committee, when America does not lead on the global stage, others who do not necessarily have our best interests at heart in mind fill the void or the challenges simply go unaddressed. In order to lead with diplomacy, we need a strong State Department. Our team has been tested in unprecedented ways over the last 20 months, most recently mobilizing to evacuate more than 123,000 people, including 6,000 U.S. citizens, 2,800 locally employed staff from Afghanistan, one of the largest non-combatant evacuations in U.S. history. And this effort was preceded in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic by our coordinating the repatriation of over 100,000 Americans from 136 different countries and territories in less than six months. A 21st century diversity, equity, inclusion. So the department is fully representative of the American where every employee is treated with dignity and respect for professional development and promotion. I will work with Abercrombie Winstanley the department's first chief diversity and inclusion officer to ensure the initiatives she leads are embedded at every level of our organization. Mr. Chairman, over the past 20 months, we have adapted to unfortunate circumstances. At State, we are building that experience to invest in a workforce that is more mobile, agile, and expeditionary, especially one that gets outside capitals more often to directly engage local communities. The virtual world provides new tools and expanded outreach. For example, confirmed, I will work to ensure we are prepared to return more hybrid workforce and environment. We will also need to build a broader knowledge set to meet the challenges our nation faces, from preventing the next pandemic, harnessing the full potential of emerging technologies and addressing climate change, to strengthening our alliances and countering our adversaries. Our diversity as a nation gives us strategic advantage. By seeking the best talent, most creative minds, and our fellow citizens' varied experiences and backgrounds, state is better equipped to advance America's security, its other interests, our values, and commitment to democracy. In our diversity, we embody the values to which our nation aspires. And we also inspire Americans to pursue a life of service and give young people across the globe hope for a better future. Finally, if confirmed, I will work to strengthen accountability 
empowering our employees to take risks, learn from their mistakes, and assume greater responsibility for their decisions. And I will endeavor to make healing central to all my efforts, from a pandemic that robbed us of too many colleagues and family members, from the withdrawal from Afghanistan, where so many of our employees served over the past two decades, and from the racial and social strife that has rocked our country and our workforce. Thank you for the opportunity to be here with you today. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Ambassador. Next, we'll turn to Ms. Crocker. Thank you, Senator Coons, Ranking Member Haggerty, and distinguished members of this committee. I am honored to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the representative of the United States to the United Nations and other international organizations in Geneva. I am grateful to President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken for this opportunity to again serve my country. I am so grateful for the love and support of my husband, Milan Vaishnav, our daughters, Asha and Farron, and for their sacrifice should I be confirmed to take on this important role. I am also thankful for the support of my father, Chester Crocker, and my sisters and their families. And I'm thinking today of my mom, who would have been so proud to witness me appearing before this committee again. My parents instilled in me a deep commitment to public service. I have had no greater honor than serving my country side by side with our career diplomatic corps. And I am especially proud that my father and I are the only father-daughter assistant secretaries of state in State Department history. My previous roles as Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs at the United Nations and overseeing CARE USA's humanitarian work have shown me that the United Nations works most effectively when the United States leads and leverages all of the tools at our disposal to advance U.S. national security interests across and through the United Nations system. My previous experiences positioned me well to represent the United States across the many different organizations in Geneva and ensure sound oversight of the U.S. contributions to those organizations. I am committed to advancing reforms to make those organizations more efficient and effective and to ensuring the United States is best positioned to lead, to collaborate, and where necessary to outcompete so that the United Nations system remains grounded on its foundational values of advancing human rights, democracy, economic opportunity, and international peace and security. China, Russia, Cuba, and others are threatening those values, seeking to co-opt multilateral institutions, including Geneva-based organizations, to impose their national agendas and reshape the rules-based international organization. For example, at the International Telecommunications Union, the People's Republic of China and Russia aim to undercut U.S. efforts to protect the open Internet. If confirmed, I will work to ensure that the United States and our like-minded partners can drive the discussion and, and the rules of the road at the ITU and other standard-setting bodies and support strong candidates for leadership in the Geneva-based organizations. The Biden-Harris administration decided that the United States should run for re-election to the UN Human Rights Council to ensure that body focuses on the world's worst human rights violators. The Geneva-based organizations are critical to U.S. efforts to address the COVID-19 pandemic, strengthen global health security, and support effective and efficient provision of humanitarian assistance in crisis and conflict situations around the world. The World Health Organization is a central pillar of the global health security architecture. If confirmed, I will 
prioritize U.S. leadership in the efforts to strengthen the WHO through reforms that promote transparency, accountability, cost effectiveness, sustainability, and equity across the agency and its programs. I am committed to ensuring that the organization can more effectively and transparently tackle COVID-19 and future emerging global health threats in collaboration with other UN and international partners. During my time at CARE USA, I saw firsthand the key role, the vital role that the United States plays in leading and supporting humanitarian efforts around the globe. In Geneva, the Office of the High Commissioner for Refugees, the International Organization on Migration, the Office of the Coordinator for Humanitarian Affairs, and the International Committee of the Red Cross and Red Crescent are key partners in those efforts. And if confirmed, I will ensure robust U.S. leadership and oversight at those agencies and look to leverage U.S. contributions to drive needed reforms and ensure other countries step up. At their best, Geneva-based organizations are valuable partners across an array of U.S. priorities, including global health security, human rights, humanitarian assistance, technology and other standard-setting efforts, climate change, intellectual property, trade, disarmament, and more. If confirmed, I will aim to reestablish U.S. relationships and leadership so that we can effectively leverage the unique multilateral platform Geneva offers to work with allies and partners, the private sector, and civil society to advance U.S. goals and push back on PRC and others' efforts to undermine those organizations. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before this committee today. I look forward to your questions and, if confirmed, to working with this committee to ensure that USUN Geneva effectively meets the challenges of today's strategic landscape. Thank you, Ms. Crocker. Dr. Carpenter, you are our last of our five nominees today. We look forward to your opening statement. Thank you, Chairman Coons, uh, Ranking Member Haggerty, and members of the committee for this opportunity to appear before you today as the President's nominee for Permanent Representative to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It is a tremendous honor to be nominated for this position, and I am grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the confidence they have placed in me. I'd also like to thank my parents, my spouse, and our two children for their endless love and support. My mother immigrated to this country from Poland. She was born during World War II while my grandparents, both physicians, were fighting the Nazi occupation as clandestine officers in the underground home army. After the war, the communist dictatorship rewarded their heroism by confiscating their property and torturing my grandfather to divulge the names of his fellow officers. He refused, even when it cost him his job at the local hospital. Over four decades later, though, he lived to see the Solidarity Movement sweep aside the oppressive communist regime. My family's struggles against totalitarianism instilled in me an appreciation for the democratic freedoms we enjoy as Americans and a conviction that they must never be taken for granted. I graduated from high school in 1989, the very year that communism was defeated in Central Europe. After er earning a doctorate studying democratic movements, I joined the Foreign Service. I was working on the South Caucasus when Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, and I was serving as NSC director for Russia when it invaded Ukraine in 2014. Later at the Pentagon, I led efforts to strengthen and support the sovereignty and territorial integrity and Euro-Atlantic aspirations of the countries between NATO and Russia. Today, the optimism of 1989 seems distant. Democratic institutions are under assault and increasingly aggressive authoritarian regimes 
seek to weaken and divide democratic states against one another. A communist dictatorship in China is trampling human rights and using economic coercion against other states. A revanchist Russia is repressing civil society and using active measures to disrupt and weaken democratic rivals. In many countries within the OSCE space, anti-Semitism, racism, and intolerance are gaining ground. Judicial independence is eroding, journalists are harassed, and ruling parties with no interest in fair electoral competition are capturing state institutions. Recognizing the enormous challenges that lie ahead, I would highlight the following three vital areas where, if confirmed, I would seek to partner with the members of this committee as well as with the Helsinki Commission. First, to promote comprehensive security across all three OSCE dimensions, politico, uh, military, economic, and environmental and human rights, uh, participating states must address not just conventional military threats, but also hybrid threats such as election interference, energy coercion, disinformation, dark money, cyber operations, and transnational repression. We need to find ways not only to shine a light on these malign activities, but also to defend ourselves and our democratic partners against them. Second, to promote prosperity and rule of law, participating states must establish stronger anti-corruption measures, both east and west of Vienna. Corruption erodes economic growth, it undermines security, and it enables state capture. Like-minded states must work together to fight kleptocracy using tools like criminal statutes against bribery, global Magnitsky-style sanctions, and collective action against offshore secrecy. Third, our allies and partners must work together to strengthen the resilience of frontline democracies. In Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, Armenia, and many Balkan countries, OSCE institutions offer a range of tools for strengthening democratic resilience, supporting religious freedom, media pluralism, electoral reform, and judicial independence all fall into this basket, as do efforts to bridge societal divides and resolve longstanding conflicts. Lastly, I want to acknowledge the instrumental role that Congress plays in achieving these goals. Whenever members of this body observe an election, condemn human rights abuses, or demand pushback against foreign coercion, you serve as a force multiplier. If confirmed, it will, be the on it will be an honor to work with the members of this committee, the Helsinki commissioners, and other members of Congress to advance our shared interest in democracy, transparency, prosperity, and security for the American people. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. We're now going to begin uh, an initial round uh, of five minutes. Uh, we have a robust participation uh, in this virtual hearing. Uh, and I will uh, ask just a few brief questions. I'll try and direct one uh, to each of the nominees, and then we'll proceed to a first round. Uh, and if uh, members are interested in a second round, if you please convey that uh, to my team uh, while we're doing these questions, that'd be quite helpful. Uh, Dr. Kang, if you would just briefly describe to me, what would the ISN Bureau's highest priorities be under your leadership? Uh, thank you for that question, uh, Senator Kuhn. Uh, I've, uh, my career has been uh, focused on uh, nuclear matters, whether it be related to nuclear security, uh, nuclear safeguards, uh, even nuclear safety. But my biggest fear has always been a biological weapon uh, that's unleashed on the world. And the COVID-19 pandemic right now is a wake-up call. Uh, and this is an area that I've been very concerned about 
uh, for many, many years. Uh, four years ago, when I was acting assistant secretary during the transition between uh, President Obama and President Trump, I tried very much uh, to increase our capability uh, in this area in the Bureau. We have a very small staff even now, uh, less than a half a dozen, uh, most of them uh, fellows uh, barred from elsewhere. But when I consider uh, that I have led diplomacy and engagement with our foreign partners and elsewhere uh, to, uh, to make everyone cognizant of a danger a radiological device uh, could create, uh, the mayhem it, that it could create and wreck on uh, uh, our economy and the casualty it could cause. Just imagine what if COVID-19 was purposely designed biological weapon. Now, st state parties uh, would be hesitant to use such a weapon, but I could clearly see a nihilistic group of terrorists and the threshold for creating something like this is not as high as creating a nuclear uh, weapon uh, uh, without uh, apparatus of a state with his uh, engineering and manufacturing capability. So that is my greatest fear. Yet at the same time, uh, the international instrument uh, that at least my bureau is responsible for, the Biological Weapons Convention, is the least institutionalized, least developed, and in many ways, least significant of uh, the many non-proliferation regime out there. So, sir, this is one area where I will be focused like a laser beam and trying to make some uh, advances. Thank you, Dr. Kang. I'll ask one more question and then uh, I'll be asking in a second round. Uh, Mr. Scheinman, if I could, uh, the, the NPT tries to balance um, peaceful use of nuclear energy um, with the goals of um, preventing the proliferation of sensitive fuel cycle nuclear technologies, enrichment reprocessing, uh, and reducing the risk uh, of the proliferation of uh, nuclear weapons technology. How should the United States balance those two goals, and what would you do to help improve the effectiveness of the NPT? Yeah, well, thank you very much uh, for the question, Senator Coons. It's um, it's really a, a critical issue for the, the long-term success of the non-proliferation system, because if we don't have adequate controls over uh, peaceful use of nuclear technology, we're very likely to see additional proliferation down the road. There, there are two areas where I think we need to uh, spend a lot of time and energy. One is ensuring that the uh, IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency's verification system, is as strong and robust as possible that we have agreements among uh, states to make it as strong and robust as possible so that we have a very clear firebreak between a country's peaceful nuclear program and any potential that that program might be put to, to weapons. Uh, the system has worked pretty well, but uh, it could certainly be improved. And, and one area in particular that uh, we hope to see improvement on is gaining global support for the additional protocol to the IAEA safeguards agreement, which is essential if we're going to ferret out undeclared nuclear programs, absolutely essential. Uh, the other area is uh, perhaps a bit outside of the NPT, but it deals with uh, supplier policies. Uh, I worry about the spread of the most sensitive 
nuclear fuel production technologies, enrichment and reprocessing, because if that spreads to additional countries, it will be very, very challenging to uh, uh, prevent countries from not using that for, for military purposes down the road. So we have to uh, work with the export um, control supply regime, the nuclear suppliers group, to encourage the highest level of restraint in those transfers. We need to work with other nuclear suppliers so that we have understandings that when we sign contracts, it's not going to include uh, enrichment and, and reprocessing technology. And we should acknowledge in the NPT itself that certain technologies are more dangerous than others, and we ought to erect the highest possible barriers. So that, that's some of the ways I think we can look at that. Great, thank you, Mr. Scheinman. Um, I look forward to a next round where I'll try to question our three other nominees, Senator Haggerty. Senator Haggerty, you are muted. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador Bernicat, I'd like to start with you. Um, I'd like to begin with a quote from Ambassadors Bill Burns and Lyndon Thomas Greenfield. And this is the quote, the, the personnel evaluation process consumes three months of an officer's time with no commensurate accountability for, let alone improvement in individual or collective performance. As U.S. Ambassador to Japan, I worked with some very talented colleagues from the State Department, but I can certainly sympathize with that statement given the amount of time that people spent on performance evaluations. And I recall the saying that if one wants to offer criticism at the Department of State, uh, that, that one does it by, uh, the, the damning, by damning someone by faint praise, as they say. I, I can't tell you how many fives I saw on personnel evaluation forms. And I, I strongly advocate for having a more rigorous evaluation process to ensure that accountability is at the center of the State Department's personnel process. So my first question is, do you agree with the characterization of the State Department's personnel evaluation process as described by Ambassadors Burns and, and Thomas Greenfield? Senator, thank you very much for that question. And you know from, from your own experience uh, of, of how time-consuming our performance evaluation process is. I, I have to say, having served um, with Linda Thomas-Greenfield when she was uh, Director General and, and uh, being a colleague of, of Bill Burns over the years, I, I know that uh, uh, Linda in particular worked very hard to um, uh, reform the EER process, which we did, um, I uh, can tell you, if confirmed, I will rededicate uh, my efforts to further reforms, uh, which I understand are, are already being considered. Um, the evaluation process um, uh, uh, is the uh, sole means by which we uh, promote people, but it is really the penultimate um, activity in what should be a year's worth of performance evaluation. Um, and as a supervisor I've all, and the leader, I've always encouraged my team, uh, if you're a supervisor, to provide honest feedback throughout the year and uh, with a notion of improving performance because no one is perfect. And then as uh, to my employees, um, to seek that kind of critical feedback because um, it's very hard to see our blind spots and our performance and those blind spots change from time to time. So. Um, I, I assure you that uh, that we have improvements we can make and, and, and we should make them. I'm glad to hear it and we look forward to working with you to, to, to talk through metrics. That, and again, I, I don't mean critical in the bad sense, but 
as I said, the performance evaluation seems so inflated to me as a business person um, that you know it's hard to, it's hard for a person to see how they might improve when anyone when everybody uh, gets such high scores in the system. Uh, one more uh, place I want to turn is the issue of promotion at the State Department, Ambassador. Uh, again, I'm going to come back to Bill Burns and Linda Thomas Greenfield. They also said this that opportunities for mid-career graduate or professional education are scarce. And here's what, what gets me, and they carried a little weight with promotion panels. The effect is often to penalize employees who receive extra training or undertake assignments to other agencies or they work in Congress because they've gone outside of the State Department system and spent time there. And if what they say is true, it really seems counterproductive to me to building a diplomatic corps that we want to have the type of breadth of experience and preparation for the 21st century. Um, and, and if confirmed, I, I would love to, to hear how you would ensure that professional education, experiences like working on the Hill are something that actually inures to the credit of, uh, of our State Department employees. Yes, well, uh, thank you. I, I, I would say three things on, on this issue. One is that um, expanding your skill set as a Foreign Service officer at whatever point in your career is considered a valuable and, um, and credible reason to promote someone. Um, in and of itself, the uh, training uh, isn't a promotable function, if you will, but have you applied the skills that you learned in, in that additional training or, or time off? Um, secondly, uh, the, uh, the um, promotion boards, again, my experience as an employee and as a supervisor, promotion boards have been instructed in recent years to give added weight to those experiences. Um, and thirdly, and this is a real key, um, Senator, we have had a roller coaster experience with hiring, uh, on, uh, both in terms of budget and in terms of, of uh, hiring freezes over, over the course of my career. It's really yeah. difficult to allow people the time that they need to, to take to get training when we're short on personnel. Um, and so um, I know that uh, um, uh, our budget requests are looking to once again build in the kind of cushion where we can let people take time off without harming the core mission. And Senator, if I can just add um, parenthetically, I had a year of university training uh, in uh, at Berkeley before going to India. And I believe it, it directly helped uh, lead to my, net, my, my promotion after that. So I would say um, when, when we use those training opportunities, build in those uh, exchange opportunities, then they strengthen the person's promotability. I, I, I'm glad to hear you say that, and that's your perspective. I, I know talking with my employees at the embassy in Japan, there was a perception that it may, you know, it may actually be a disadvantage to take that time off. And I understand the resource constraints that make it difficult and challenging, but I look forward to working with you because I do think those sort of broadening experience make a real difference. Mr. Chairman, I'll yield my time back and look forward to a, a second round. Thank you, Senator. Senator Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. And first, let me uh, thank all of our nominees for their willingness to continue to serve our country. Uh, we thank you. We thank your families. Uh, Dr. Carpenter, I first want to uh, appreciate the meeting that we had and your statements today about working with the, the members of the Senate and the, the Helsinki Commission members and the Helsinki Commission itself. Uh, I think we share the, the, the same objectives. I was very pleased to hear your three priorities. Uh, in regards to the hybrid threat, uh, you're exactly right. I call your attention to a report I authored uh, when I was ranking on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee 
about Mr. Putin's use of an asymmetric arsenal to bring down democratic states. Uh, and I think you'll find a lot of the issues you talk about, we document um, Russia's specific use of these tools uh, to compromise democracies. And that's why the resiliency of frontline democracies is so much a, needs to be a priority. Uh, we've seen a decline of, of democracies uh, globally. Uh, and certainly within the OSCE region, there's been a, a significant decline uh, of democratic states. And then lastly, the corruption issue. You and I talked about this. But corruption is the fuel that allows the autocratic regimes to stay in power. So I'm going to ask your help in three bills that are moving through the Congress, because sometimes we don't get the full cooperation of the executive branch uh, and, the, uh, and the missions within uh, the State Department. Uh, one would set up a tier rating system for how well every state in the country, every country in the world is dealing with uh, corruption. The other makes the global Magnitsky statute permanent and strengthens some of the provisions within it. Uh, and the third establishes uh, a fund that we can use when opportunity presents itself uh, to deal with uh, dealing with corruption in, in countries. All three are bipartisan. All three are very strongly supported. Uh, there's been positive action in our committee. But I would ask your your support uh, for, for these initiatives, because uh, I think it very much will help you in regards uh, uh, to your mission. So I look forward to working with you and I'll be glad to hear a response. Thank you, Senator Cardin, for your uh, incredible leadership on these issues. And it's been so heartening to see the Helsinki Commission uh, and you in particular leading the effort on anti-kleptocracy. And I would note that the Anti-Kleptocracy Act now has, uh, I believe, seven different bills attached to it, uh, all of which strike at key elements of global corruption. This is a problem, as you've just noted, Senator, that uh, is inextricably linked to the growth of authoritarianism around the world. Often we see regimes that uh, consolidate political power that start out by using corrupt means, whether it's doling out procurement contracts or using other forms of graft and bribery uh, to be able to accumulate economic power. So those two things, sort of the oligarchization of politics around the world and the growing authoritarianism of politics around the world go together. And of course, some of our uh, biggest competitors, both Russia and China, uh, are experts at weaponizing corruption uh, against democratic states. So uh, I, I value these efforts, uh, the incredible number of ideas and bills that have come out of the Helsinki uh, Commission, many of which you have co-sponsored, uh, and look forward to advancing this agenda if, if confirmed. I look forward to working with you. Uh, Dr. Kang and uh, Ambassador Schneiman, I'd like to ask you about probably the greatest threat we have on nuclear proliferation, and that is Iran. Uh, we're in a somewhat difficult position right now, not being part of the JCPOA, uh, in which we have seen Iran violate the JCPOA, and yet we are, it looks like, supporting a path that will uh, not allow for the international sanctions. I want to know your strategies for how you will advise uh, President Biden and the administration on what can work in making sure Iran does not have nuclear weapons. Uh, perhaps I should start, uh, sir. Uh, absolutely. Iran should never obtain a nuclear weapon. President is absolutely committed to that, and that's consistent uh, passed over a number of uh, administrations. But return to the JCPOA uh, advances our national security interests. 
Uh, and it's the intention of the president uh, to build a longer and stronger deal, uh, which encompasses regional destabilization that uh, Iran is uh, responsible for, but also the ballistic missile uh, development uh, they have, which could threaten certainly the regional uh, neighbors, but perhaps over time, ultimately the United States. So, yes, there, there has been uh, 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 a break in uh, uh, conversations and or negotiations uh, between our lead negotiator, uh, Rob Malley, who is in charge of this uh, since June. Uh, but there also has been an election in Tehran. Now, the Supreme Leader makes the ultimate call. But nonetheless, uh, it is uh, left to the presidential administration to implement and negotiate uh, their uh, position with us. Uh, so. We are uh, still waiting for a positive response uh, from Iran. Uh, but nonetheless, as uh, Senator Carter, you, you point out, the Iranians are creating facts on the ground, which has nothing to do with peaceful uses of nuclear energy. Enrichment up to 60% for uh, uranium, uh, uh, also producing uranium metal of 20%. Uh, these are dangerous moves. So. While we haven't imposed a deadline for these negotiation, I think the Secretary uh, Blinken made it uh, clear uh, and stated that uh, we are very conscious that as time proceeds, Iran's nuclear advances will have a bearing in its view, uh, uh, our view of returning to the JCPOA. And President also said the process won't be open indefinitely. And sir, as someone who had uh, pioneer in many ways and also uh, been at the front edge of uh, many uh, non-proliferation and counter-proliferation sanctions targeting whether it be DPRK, Syria, or Iran. Uh, all those machineries and authorities, and thanks for uh, tools that Congress has armed us with, uh, we're ready uh, to make sure that Iran makes the right decision, uh, not just uh, for, well, for itself, for the sake of the Iranian people. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We're next uh, going to hear from Senator Young. Uh, thank you, Chairman. Uh, I'll stick with the topic of Iran for starters here. Uh, uh, since uh, both Dr. Kang and Mr. Scheinman uh, are up for related and somewhat overlapping positions, I'd like you each to uh, speak to your views on, on the following questions. Um, just to lay the foundation here, at the last moment, the IAEA uh, struck a deal with Iranian officials on September 12th to continue nuclear monitoring. However, in that deal, the storage cards for the monitoring cameras are sealed and cannot be viewed until the United States and Iran resume JCPOA talks. But this, of course, is a critical time when Iran is actively moving towards having enough material for a bomb. I'd like to know what uh, each of you you believes is is a realistic time frame uh, before Iran has enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon. How much time are we dealing with here? Is it uh, Ambassador Scheinman, are you comfortable dealing with it? Uh, as a sitting uh, official. Go ahead, please. Yes, perhaps I'm in a better position because I do not believe uh, uh, Mr. Scheinman is uh, uh, privy to uh, some of the uh, the latest information okay. and assessment. Go ahead, sir. 
Yeah, yes, sir. So the platform, of course, um, this particular platform uh, is not ideal for uh, uh, transmitting uh, the most accurate and precise information to you, sir. So if confirmed, I certainly will be uh, happy to uh, okay. brief you on okay. this matter. But it, it is true. I mean, they have, uh, as when uh, they were complying with JCPOA, they were about a year away from producing enough fissile material for uh, sure. a viable so weapon. Been, yeah, now so they're months at, away. Yeah. I understand uh, if, uh, if, if you're read into this, uh, you of course uh, would not want to provide any classified estimates, uh, which, is, uh, which is good, you pass that test. Uh, but open source, uh, you know, uh, materials indicate that, you know, a couple of months uh, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, some of the latest estimates that may or may not be accurate. Um, I will at ask each of you to answer uh, the following. What, what alternatives is the Biden administration considering if the resumption of talks fails? Dr. King. Yes, sir. So. Ultimately, that would be uh, up to the president and the secretary and others uh, at a much higher uh, pay <laughs> scale uh, step than myself. But it's clear that uh, what my mission would be, and our bureau is very well equipped uh, to apply uh, those necessary sanctions, interdiction, and other measures uh, to make sure that there is sufficient uh, incentive for Iran to reconsider his position. Okay, so your job would not be to offer counsel on such matters? Well, I would definitely voice my uh, opinion, sir, and I'll be part of the interagency process. But I've been dealing with proliferators uh, all my uh, career here at State Department. Yeah. DPRK, Syria. You mentioned sanctions, Dr. Kang. Uh, didn't we, we had sanctions before this administration came in. So um, what, what other options might you recommend? Well, certainly there are other things that, uh, once again, I, I cannot um, fully discuss with you uh, in this platform. Uh, okay. But as in general matter, uh, interdiction is something that we're very good at. Uh, they're very export control measures that uh, that we lead, and we will turn those on right back Thank on. You, Mr. Scheinman, will you be involved consultatively with the administration in your role on such matters? And yes. if so, uh, if you would kindly indicate uh, uh, what uh, what alternatives the administration could si should consider if these uh, talks fail. Yeah, thank you, Senator. Um, I would note that my responsibilities will not include uh, our direct uh, negotiations with Iran that, that's handled by uh, others in the administration. Uh, I will probably look at the issue through the, the lens of the non-proliferation treaty and, and what do we do uh, if Iran were to, to break out of the non-proliferation Okay. Well, I, I, my time is winding down. I just note I, I also had a question for uh, Ms. Crocker pertaining to an unrelated matter. Um, uh, it relates to the Human Rights Council. And, proceed briefly, uh, if you mind, Senator, again. Yes, I will indeed. Uh, the, the step they took of establishing a permanent commission of inquiry to investigate Israel, the only such permanent agenda item on the council. Uh, we will ask you about that in writing. Perhaps uh, you could offer your, your views on the propriety of that matter. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Young. Senator Schatz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador Bernicat, uh, to all of you, uh, thank you for your willingness to serve. Uh, I understand that uh, Special Envoy uh, Kerry and his team are doing 
a lot of work in terms of how to make sure uh, taking action on climate is a routine part of how our foreign service thinks about their mission on a day to day basis. Can you talk a little bit about where you see the opportunities to make climate action part of recruitment, training, and promoting uh, foreign service officers uh, so that it becomes a permanent part of the foreign service and the State Department and doesn't swing uh, wildly uh, depending on who the secretary is and who the president is? Thank you so much, Senator Schatz, for that question. That is um, that has been seizing all of us, as, and especially in my current role as acting uh, Assistant Secretary for Oceans, Environment, and, and Scientific Affairs. Our goal is to increase the literacy uh, department-wide on Ambassador Bernicke, in a demonstration of the need for greater investment in State Department IT, your, your signal um, it is begins with recruiting very, very badly. Um, but of course, uh, the bulk of our core is generalist, and so um, my videos to improve the, the audio. Is that working? Sure. Better. Why don't we try uh, and continue that way? Okay, I've, I've, also, I've also changed locations, so tell me if, if, if that helps. Um, uh, I'm near a window. More Thank you, Senator Hegarty. Um, recruiting more people with ESTH skills, uh, as well as promoting STEM education, um, are part of the plan. Um, uh, but I can assure you, sir, if confirmed, uh, that we will also look for ways to improve training for all um, officers and, and staff, uh, as well as to bring more people uh, into um, the various bureaus who have specific responsibility for, for these issues, um, in no small part because they are tied not just to environment, but to uh, energy, to increasing jobs, and to um, everything uh, uh, related to the environment, including health. Uh, you know, I think that's a good start, but I want to I want to be really crisp with what I'm asking. I'm looking for the kinds of changes that are institutionally difficult to reverse and do not depend on who the president is. And, you know, just an emphasis on on who you hire um, is, is not an unreasonable start, but I'm looking for processes, training manuals, curricula and all of that uh, to change because climate is not going to go away as a threat multiplier and as a diplomatic challenge. So I um, look forward to working with you on that. Um, uh, Ambassador, um, as you know, we pass a, a, a defense authorization every year uh, and we sometimes pass a Coast Guard authorization every year. And I'm wondering if you can talk about in your mind's eye um, uh, what it would be like if the Congress passed an annual State Department reauthorization, as we do for the Department of Defense, and how that might help to address the challenges that you see with the Foreign Service? Well, um, sir, thank you for that question. And, and let me just say, you know, thank you. I look forward to working with this committee and with Congress on a whole host of issues related to the to the health and, and, and function of, the, uh, of our um, staffs and the State Department in general. Um, I would say that, you know, it, in general, our greatest resources are people. And so 
um, the ability, uh, uh, as you say, recruiting is a good start, but we also need to, to um, make sure that we're retaining and, and uh, developing that talent pool all along the way in their career. And to be able to do that, um, uh, steady funding, uh, to be able to plan workforces out over a period of time is really important. We are parenthetically right now the, the youngest foreign, uh, excuse me, State Department in terms of seniority that we've been in years. And that has a lot to do with the hiring surges that took place under Secretary Powell and Secretary um, Clinton, um, as well as a, a good number of, of retirements, especially in our in our Civil Service Corps. Um, in terms of processes uh, um, related to to um, the environment, uh, there there are a whole host of things from uh, from uh, legislation that 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 requires specific actions. Um, we are we are leading again, um, you know, from the from the from the front on environmental issues, and we are um, are committing ourselves to a number of actions that have multiple year uh, um, execution in order to make them happen. And so um, we're we're looking for to build in ways to make sure that we're supporting not only our commitments but the countries that we are asking to make those commitments. Thank you, um, Mr. Chairman. Can I have another minute? Um, one question, if you would, Senator Schatz. Thank you. Uh, just uh, Dr. Kang, um, the the, um, uh, the Biden administration is continuing the previous administration's proposals uh, to expand U.S. nuclear capabilities, including a new low-yield nuclear sea-launched cruise missile that uh, many of us believe is dangerous and unnecessary. Um, I, I understand that some of the true bad actors are not persuaded um, by anything um, uh, or, or by much, and that um, sort of calls uh, of hypocrisy are not particularly compelling. But I'm also wondering about the rational countries that we're um, trying to persuade not to pursue their own nuclear ambitions and how we square um, our pursuing of these low-yield nuclear uh, sea-launched cruise missiles with our desire to stop proliferation among uh, some of our um, allies and adversaries who are considering whether they want to go down the wrong path. Thank you for that question, Senator. I'll try my best to answer that question because that wouldn't be in the area of uh, responsibility for uh, the Bureau of ISN. It would be for the Companion Bureau, uh, ABC, Arms Control and Verification. Uh, and of course, uh, Undersecretary uh, Bonnie Jenkins, uh, who would have the, the department lead on this. But sure, having but said in that- the interest of time, um, In the interest of time and clarity, do, do you see that as a challenge for the oh, United States? Oh, yes, sir. States? I mean, there's an intimate link between arms control and non-proliferation. Uh, those who have uh, possessed nuclear weapons uh, in the context of the NPT, uh, nuclear weapon state, they have an obligation uh, to reduce uh, and ultimately seek uh, disarmament. So it's, it would set a bad act example. For example, China massively expanding uh, its uh, nuclear uh, strategic capability it's counterproductive and it runs counter to non-proliferation. Thank you very much. Senator Van Hall. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman and, and Ranking Member Hegarty. And congratulations uh, to all of you on your nominations. Uh, it's great to see uh, a panel of such uh, experience. Um, and Ambassador Bernicat, congratulations on the nomination uh, to be the Director General of the Foreign Service. I'm thrilled with the appointment. 
Um, as you may know, I come from a foreign service uh, family and um, very interested and focused um, on ensuring um, the strong morale and support for the for the Foreign Service. Uh, and um, Senator Dan Sullivan, um, Republican from Alaska, and myself, uh, you know, formed uh, the Foreign Service Caucus a number of years ago, and we've introduced legislation called the Foreign Service Families Act. And that act would um, extend uh, different benefits to Foreign Service families to, to try to bring them up on a par with the benefits that are extended to military uh, families um, serving overseas. And uh, I know that the uh, most recent quadrennial diplomacy and development review found, and I'm quoting, ensuring opportunities for spousal employment should be an integral part of plans to retain and motivate staff, unquote. Uh, do you agree with that? Oh my goodness, Senator Van Hollen, I have to just express enormous gratitude for the work that you, Senator Sullivan, and others have done, um, particularly on behalf of our families. Um, the, uh, we have almost 2,000 family members now working overseas. They bring, and back here in Washington, they bring amazing talents to, um, to augment our, our uh, often bare bones operations. And so looking for ways to ensure that, that we can take advantage, but also that makes it easier to serve as families. You know, Senator, I, I can't help but um, I can't resist. Uh, when you mentioned Foreign Service families, I don't think Bathsheba knows this, but um, I studied under her father at Georgetown University. And so um, in, the, in the spirit of, you know, being mentored, I don't think uh, I'd be here today if it weren't in part um, for Chet Crocker. So um, uh, Shiba, Bathsheba, I'm also part of the family. <laughs> Well, thank you, Madam Ambassador, for mentioning that as well about uh, uh, Jack Crocker. And uh, it's, it's great to see um, Bathsheba here and others. Um, let me, uh, and just on the Foreign Service uh, Families Act, uh, you know, we've asked the chairman of the full committee uh, to put it on the next markup calendar. And we're waiting for uh, a green light from the, the ranking member of the full committee. And I see no reason for opposition, but we're continuing to push. Um, so, Dr. Uh, Kang, uh, thank you for your uh, current service uh, in the acting position, and I uh, look forward to supporting you uh, in this confirmation uh, process. On, on the issue of nuclear uh, nonproliferation, um, Saudi Arabia, as you know, has been uh, engaged with successive administrations with nuclear cooperation uh, talks, uh, but continues to have in place, Saudi Arabia, that is, uh, the lowest standard of safeguards with the IEA. IEA. And again, they say they want at least two nuclear power plants as part of a, a program going forward. And they seem intent on mastering the front end of a nuclear fuel cycle and developing enrichment uh, capabilities. So my question to you is, has the administration, has the Biden administration made any attempt in either bilateral or multilateral settings to push Saudi Arabia to sign and implement the additional protocol with the IAEA? Senator, thank you for that question. Uh, we've been in negotiation with uh, Saudi Arabia since uh, 2012. Uh, and I think that says something. <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, President Biden has made it clear that uh, he will recalibrate our relationship with Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, think, uh, human rights and other matters that complicates the relationship. Now, uh, in terms of uh, having the lowest standard, uh, well, Saudi Arabia is party to the NPT, 
and it has enforced a comprehensive safeguard uh, agreement. Uh, and uh, it, in terms of their ambitions are very high, and certainly they have the, the financial resources to make it happen, uh, just as we have seen uh, what uh, UAE has done. But having said that, uh, they have not made significant uh, 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 moves in actually uh, gaining capability. Uh, United States has supported the uh, universalization of additional protocol, uh, and that is policy. And also we discourage enrichment and reprocessing uh, where uh, these capabilities uh, do not already exist. And so we're pursuing a one, two, three agreement uh, with uh, Saudi Arabia because precisely because one, two, three agreement is a non-proliferation tool. So uh, we are of course uh, uh, briefing uh, members as well as staff uh, as if there are any movement on this. And of course, it will always be a pleasure uh, to brief you on this matter. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, I see that the time has uh, expired, but we will follow up uh, with you on, on that. And I'll be submitting a question for the record uh, on the administration's full compliance with the Brink Act, uh, which was uh, to ensure we plug a lot of the loopholes in the sanction regime against North Korea. We saw the recent reports uh, about their uh, firing the missiles. And so uh, I'll put that in the record. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Van Hollen. Um, and I don't believe Senator Kane is still with us. Is that correct? So I believe every member who's uh, participating has had a chance at a first round. Senator Haggerty, I know you've got additional questions you'd like to ask, and I have a few more I'll ask. But let me defer to you to begin the second round, Senator Haggerty. That's very kind of you, Chairman Coons. I appreciate it. I, I'd first like to turn to Dr. Carpenter, uh, talk about Nord Stream 2. Dr. Carpenter, you previously said, and I want to quote this, to make sanctions against Russia work, the United States and its allies need to dispense with symbolic gestures and impose stronger sanctions that will have an immediate economic impact. Dr. Carpenter, I just want to say I wholeheartedly agree with that statement. And in 2019, you stated the following, quote, the European Union has unfortunately lacked the political will to implement its own anti-monopoly rules and stop Nord Stream 2 from coming to fruition, which means the U.S. Congress is now the only body that can prevent the pipeline from being built. Dr. Carpenter, I wholeheartedly agree with that statement too. Yet in May, the Biden administration waived U.S. sanctions against Nord Stream 2 AG and sanctions against the chief executive. And last week, Gazprom announced that it has now completed the pipeline. So Dr. Carpenter, my, my question is this, with the pipeline now complete, what do you feel will be the impact on energy security in Europe? Well, thank you for the question, uh, Senator. Uh, I am very concerned by the geopolitical consequences of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. This is a project by the Kremlin uh, that brings no new gas molecules from Russia to Europe, but merely bypasses Ukraine and the Central European countries and delivers that very same gas directly to Germany, uh, thereby giving uh, the Kremlin enormous leverage over Ukraine, uh, Poland, Slovakia, other countries in Central Europe. Uh, going forward, if I am confirmed, I will work to reinvigorate the second dimension of the OSCE, the economic and environmental dimension that deals with energy security. Uh, and I'll seek to work very closely with my friend Amos Hochstein, who is the senior advisor to the secretary 
on energy security to build resilience for our partners and particularly Ukraine in terms of energy supply so that Russia cannot continue to use energy supplies uh, as a form of political weaponization of energy and energy coercion. Uh, and uh, last thing I'll say on this, Senator, I, I think it's very important that the United States continue to, have, uh, uh, continue to be ready to use all of the authorities contained within PISA and CATSA, which are the laws of the land uh, when it comes to this. Yeah. Well, I know the OSCE will have many divergent opinions uh, in terms of Nord Stream 2, and I wish you the best with that, Dr. Carpenter. Dr. Kang, can I turn with you now to focus on North Korea? Um, you know, we worked enormously hard with Japan, with the UN Security Council to impose three different, three successively more biting sets of economic sanctions on North Korea. Uh, they had an immediate and very, very important effect on North Korea's economy, yet China has continued to undercut our position there. And at the same time, North Korea has persisted in working in secret on their nuclear program. And there's an example I'd like to highlight, and that's according to non-governmental experts, North Korea is producing uranium at a covert facility, covert uranium enrichment facility, known by US, the U.S. intelligence community as the Kang Sun enrichment site. It's not, not surprising that North Korea would build secret facilities to produce fissile material, but it poses significant proliferation challenges, especially considering Pyongyang's previous efforts to provide Syria with a nuclear reactor. If confirmed, you're going to be responsible for spearheading the State Department's efforts to reduce WMD-related threats by promoting bilateral and multilateral initiatives to prevent proliferation. So my question is, Dr. Kang, if confirmed, will you commit to providing regular updates to the committee about the administration's efforts to address North Korea's declared and undeclared nuclear and missile facilities and programs? Absolutely, Senator. Uh, I have um, a long relationship with our lead on uh, re-engagement with North Korea, Ambassador Song Kim. Uh, I have uh, extensive relationship uh, in the government of uh, Republic of Korea, as well as Japan. Uh, this will be a top priority. Uh, as you know, North Korea is awfully a, a hardened state, and as you rightly point out, there's always uh, this escape valve of China. China made a decision some time ago that it's tolerable for North Korea to have nuclear weapons uh, as long as it, it, it is a buffer state. So it is a difficult proposition, but I believe the president is on a right path regard to calibrate a practical approach. Uh, and this is something that uh, uh, Ambassador Sung Kim and myself uh, during the Bush administration have some uh, uh, practical uh, experience in. I've had the privilege of working with Ambassador Sung Kim as well, and I look forward to continue to working with both of you as we address this challenge. Uh, Mr. Chairman, if you'd permit me, I have just, just a follow-on question, if I might, uh, for, for Assistant course. Secretary Crocker. Of course. Please proceed. Thank you so much. Uh, Assistant Secretary Crocker, I want to focus on China's growing influence among international organizations. You mentioned this in your opening remarks. And while you served as the Assistant Secretary for International Organizations during the Obama administration, China took over leadership of multiple international organizations and staffed them with Chinese, with, with Chinese nationals. Uh, but in 2017, our posture toward China's malign behavior changed. And if confirmed, I hope that you'll continue uh, that, that posture developed during the previous administration to continue to counter 
China's influence uh, in, in global institutions. And further, I fully expect you to fight for American influence by supporting qualified candidates in leadership positions and look to increase positions for Americans, such as greater positions in the junior professional officers program at the UN. And as you mentioned, representation like at the ITU, but I hope to see uh, much more uh, participation there. And so my question is, uh, if confirmed, what actions will you take to make certain that qualified United States candidates are in leadership positions at UN bodies in Geneva? Thank you for the question, Senator. And, um, and I think, as you noted, uh, this is a strategic priority for China, and it needs to be a strategic priority for the United States. And indeed, um, the State Department and the, and the administration are making a concerted effort, um, working with like-minded partners and allies. Um, to ensure that we are able to both identify and then robustly support qualified, viable, independent candidates for leadership positions um, in international organizations, be they American candidates or other like-minded candidates. Mm -hmm. And if confirmed, um, I this will be a top priority for, for me. It is a, um, an effort that I fully support, and I would look um, to use uh, my role and uh, the role and the resources <laughs> of the U.S. mission in Geneva, working closely with the State Department um, and across the interagency to ensure that we are best positioned diplomatically um, and, um, and in terms of resources to support the candidacies. You mentioned the ITU, where, of course, there is an American candidate up for um, Secretary General um, for an election that will take place in September of 2022. And if confirmed, I would consider this to be one of my highest priorities on getting out to Geneva to support that candidacy and, and ensure that the mission is doing everything it can to support the candidacy. Um, and I think, again, this looking at both um, election for leadership positions, but also, as you mentioned, um, making sure that we are strategically focused on ensuring um, that we are looking also at staffing up and down the system. The Chinese um, are doing that, um, as you note, from the junior political officer level all the way up. And we need to do that. And, and if confirmed, I would look forward to working with Congress to make sure and this committee to make sure that we have the appropriate resources to do that. Well, I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that, Assistant Secretary Crocker. Thank you. And I'll be submitting a question for the record uh, for Mr. Scheinman uh, about China and the NPT. Uh, I'm very concerned about uh, their obligations as signatory to that treaty and, and the fact that they're not uh, living up to those obligations that will be in this QFRs coming forward. Mr. Scheinman, and thank you, Mr. Chairman, for indulging me with some extra time. Of course. Um, thank you, Senator Haggerty, and um, thank you for a a series of, I think, reasonable and balanced questions. Ironically, uh, the last question you asked uh, of Assistant Secretary Crocker was the question I was going to ask. I'm sorry. Uh, and I'll add, no, 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 I think it's uh, well worth uh, focusing on for a moment. Uh, one of the things that um, I was most enthusiastic about in terms of uh, actions uh, of a, a member of the previous administration, there was a heated contest for leadership of the World Intellectual Property Organization. Uh, and uh, Andre Yanko, the former PTO director, um, successfully uh, mobilized uh, an effort amongst all of our allies to ensure that um, the, the successful nominee was from a country um, and a person with experience that would suggest a commitment to protecting IP um, rather than someone who might be um, more questionable in terms of their commitment to IP. There are so many organizations uh, that you'll have some role in that I just want to emphasize. And I agree with Senator Haggerty that it is important that we, the United States, and our and our partners uh, pay attention to the ways in which China is expanding its influence uh, throughout the UN system. 
Let me ask one last question then, if I might, uh, Ms. Crocker. Um, there's a number of entities of the United Nations, uh, the Human Rights Council, for example, UNESCO's and other, um, where we've withdrawn either because of uh, previous conduct. I think it was Senator Van Holland who referenced this sort of permanent agenda item on the Human Rights Council um, questioning Israel that uh, we had found objectionable or whether it's some of the ways in which UNESCO, by admitting Palestine, has um, run afoul of um, our priorities and views. Um, we are now in significant arrearages, um, both with the UN as a whole and with some of the specialized agencies or entities. In your view, just speaking broadly, uh, are we better off uh, being at the table and uh, current in our payments and pushing back on uh, adversaries who have uh, competing perspectives on uh, entities, whether it's the WHO or the ITU or otherwise? Um, or are there certain circumstances where um, we need to withdraw from UN entities because of the ways in which they've um, conducted themselves? Thank you for that question, question Chairman Coons. Uh, it is my view um, and, and, and agree very much with the position and approach of the Biden-Harris administration on this, that we are far better served to be at the table um, and, and in good standing um, in terms of our financial payments to the organization in order to be able to effectively drive the kinds of reforms that we want to see across the system around accountability, efficiency, effectiveness, um, and also dealing with some of the, the credibility issues that frankly exist um, in different parts of the system, um, whether that's the anti-Israel bias at the Human Rights Council that you and Senator Young also um, raised earlier, um, or some of the issues, or some of the issues at UNESCO. Um, so I think um, for sure it's better for us to be um, to be in good standing from a financial perspective. Um, but also I think it's just important to recognize, and this gets also to, to Senator Haggerty's questions earlier. Um, that it is important for us to be able to be at the table with the full weight of the United States from a diplomatic perspective um, backing us. Um, and I certainly saw firsthand when I was Assistant Secretary for International Organization Affairs the important role that our bilateral and multilateral missions face, uh, I play, um, uh, and the importance of making sure that they are well resourced um, and that we have strong people across the board able to raise these issues um, and raise them at the right levels in countries around the world because when we are operating at full strength um, diplomatically as the United States, there's no one that can really go to, to bat with us. Um, so if we want to go, whether it's toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Chinese or um, with the full strength that we need to be at to push the reforms we want to see across the system, um, I fully agree that we need to both be in good financial standing and also um, in, our, in our strongest position possible from a diplomatic perspective. Um, well, thank you. Uh, thank you both for that answer and to all five of our nominees today uh, for your willingness to continue your service to the United States and for your uh, dedication um, to taking on these important posts and positions. As I referenced at the beginning of this hearing, uh, questions for the record are due uh, by the close of business this Thursday, the 16th. A number of um, uh, members who've participated today have indicated uh, they intend to submit QFRs, so please do uh, respond promptly so that we can uh, conclude the hearing process uh, and hopefully move forward with your confirmation votes. Um, thank you, Senator Haggerty, for uh, serving as the ranking member of this confirmation hearing. Uh, and to the five of you, uh, congratulations, uh, good luck. Uh, I personally look forward to supporting your nominations and um, hope to stay in regular touch with you as you go forth to um, serve the people of the United States, um, depending on the action of the Senate in the coming weeks and months. So. Uh, with that, this hearing is concluded. Thank you all very much.
Thank you, Mr. Chairman.